So welcome to our weekly Steel Sermon. In this podcast, an extract from a sermon preached in 2017 at Temple Patrick Reformed Church, we look at the story of Noah, the story of how God rescues a man from this sinful world and then uses that man to accomplish his purposes. And we look again at that verse in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, which says that God's Spirit will not always strive with man. And we learn a little bit more about the dangers of semi-Pelagianism. Follow the web links in the episode notes and you'll find the study guides, which will be a real help in understanding the points made in the sermon. Now, let's listen. look at Noah and to see Noah's walk, Noah's work, Noah's warranty, Noah's willingness, Noah's saintly perseverance. So who was Noah? Well chapter 6 and verse 9 begins, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. I want to move across this quickly because this story is not just about the flood or about judgment. It is about those things. But it's about how God saves a man out of a lost world. The message of Noah is the message of salvation. Noah was a just man. And the only way a person can be just is to be made just. Remember what we have learned over and over again in gospel sermons over the years, that there is no one in this world who is just. It is to to be just is to be right in the eyes of the law. But in the eyes of God's law, we are all unjust. We all stand condemned. The only way to be just in the sight of God is to be made just. And to be made just by grace through faith. So Noah is justified. He's a justified man. He's blameless and perfect in his generations. What does that mean? Was he perfect? Well, the only person who was ever perfect was Jesus. Noah had a living testimony. To say that he was perfect in the eyes of man, perfect in his generations, marks him out as being different from the people who lived around him. But that doesn't mean that he was sinlessly perfect, but that he wasn't part of the culture of that time. A man who was in fellowship with God. For it says here that Noah walked with God, just like Enoch before him, who had walked with God. One of the interesting things I find about Noah is that he was simply a family man. He had a wife, and he had sons, and later on we see that he has grandchildren. He's just a simple family man who is doing what God bids him to do, and that gives us great encouragement. Noah is a man who is justified by faith. A man who 
has a great testimony among his neighbors. A man who's walking in fellowship with the Lord. A man who is a family man, just like all the rest of us. And he's a gospel preacher. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we read this. God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. I mark that. We'll need that for later. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah's walk was that he was a man who was justified by grace through faith. He was a man who had a good testimony among the world around him. He was a man who was in fellowship with God. He was a man who had a family. He was a gospel preacher, a godly man with a testimony, living in an age that was totally inhospitable to him. And Noah had a work. God had given him a task, an interesting task. One of his tasks was to condemn the world. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. There you are. Noah, the gospel preacher, was condemning the world. Not allowed to do that nowadays. You're not, not allowed to sit in judgment on anybody. But Noah condemned the world. The very act of proclaiming God's salvation and God's judgment brought more condemnation upon the world. That was his task. His task was to discern the will of God. And Noah, God's verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth and to put aside his own plans. For Noah was called to build an ark. In fact, when you look at verse 15, you'll see that the ark is very strictly laid down. It is to be built in a certain way. This is the fashion which thou shalt make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower and second and third stories. It's laid out meticulously. Let's talk about that ark just for a moment. I'm sure you've seen the artist's depictions of the ark, haven't you? In the children's books. Uh, it's a big tub with a giraffe sticking out the roof. That's not what it was like at all. Nothing like that. The ark was described as being like a very big, giant, floating coffin. A big box with three floors and a door in its side. And when we think of this ark, as we'll see next week and as we move through this, the ark is like a type of Christ pointing us to Jesus. Remember that all of the Old Testament points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This has got a door in its side. Jesus said, I am the door. When that side was opened, 
people could go in and be saved from God's judgment through which you could enter and be saved. There was a hole. And you know, the Lord Jesus had a riven side where the spear was placed and thrust into his side and from which poured blood and water and it is his blood that saves us. Remember how in the New Testament we're taught about being in Christ. In the ark there was salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. All who were in the ark were saved. You can see that Noah's work is very much to point us to the one who would come, who would be our salvation. Noah's walk, Noah's work, Noah's warranty. He's given a promise. There's a covenant established right at the very beginning of the narrative in verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and I shall come into the ark, thy and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with you. And of course, that covenant is then extended to every flesh because later on as we look at the covenant with Noah, we'll see that it's a covenant with the whole world. Noah's walk, Noah's work, Noah's warranty, and Noah's willingness. In verse 22, in that last verse that we read, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. But despite all his neighbors and friends, and despite all the mockery and all the jeers, Noah was determined to obey God, rather and to please man, just as the disciples did in the book of Acts. Now, that's the first sermon over. Let's look at Noah's saintly perseverance. I want to go back for a moment to that controversial verse in verse 6 that we looked at briefly last time. Verse Chapter 6 and verse, verse 3, rather, Chapter 6 and verse 3, where it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, you should know by now that this is not about you. All right. The Bible's about Christ. Most of today's modern evangelicalism in Northern Ireland is plagued by Phineism, semi-Pelagianism. It's that doctrine where you have to play a part in your salvation. It's that doctrine that says, well, God has gone 99.999% of the way to save you, but now you must do your bit. And then different preachers will tell you what your bit must be. Semi-Pelagianism. It's both theologically and contextually incorrect. God does not act capriciously or act on a whim. And what happens is that sometimes people who have the common view of salvation in Northern Ireland will talk about this verse. And they will preach it in this way. My spirit shall not always strive with a man. And that man is you. 
And tonight God's Spirit will not always strive with you. And you could leave this place tonight and God could be calling you to be saved right now. And you could go out through those doors and you could get into your car and you could drive home and God will never, ever speak to you again. And you'll be lost for all of eternity. Now, here's my question when I hear that kind of preaching. How does God elect people to salvation and then unelect them? When you preach on that in some places, they will be greatly offended. One man came to me a long time ago. I'd just come into the ministry 30-odd years ago. And one man came to me after I'd preached on, a ver- on this verse, and he said to me, you know, you've just removed the verse that I was saved by. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that. Maybe we should talk about your salvation. God doesn't act in a whim. So this verse is not about you. In fact, they even write hymns about it, don't they? Oh, come while the Saviour in mercy is pleading, and steer for the harbour bright. For how do you know but your soul may be drifting over the deadline tonight? It's not true. The verse is not about that. Whether that's the case or not, the verse is not about that. If you put the verse into simple context, in fact, if you just finish the sentence, you will see that the verse does not say, my spirit shall not always strive with a man. It says, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Now, immediately that you read the sentence, you can see that this is not talking about a man, you, in a gospel meeting. This is talking about mankind who is going to perish because mankind is flesh and all flesh dies and rots away. This is about the probation of man ending at death, not about the probation of man ending when you walk out through the door of the meeting. For that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. He has, in this case, a hundred and twenty years to repent. Let's think about this. Some things we can say. First of all, from this verse we learn that man's life is limited. That our sinful condition on this earth is terminal. That one day we will die and the opportunity to repent for all of mankind will be over. And it reminds us that there will be a sudden and unexpected day when the Lord will return. And those who are outside of his kingdom will be lost forever, like in the days of Noah. They will be marrying. They'll be giving in marriage. They'll be working. They'll be taking their leisure. They'll be eating. They'll be drinking. They'll be laughing. They'll be singing. They'll be crying. Life will be going on as normal when, without warning, suddenly God will pour out his wrath upon sin. And for mankind, history on this earth will have ended. There will be no more gospel preaching. There will be no more believers coming on the radio to be made a mockery of. There will be no more gay pride parade walking along the streets of Belfast 
shaking the fist at God, flaunting their immorality. There will be no more time to repent, for as we read in Second Peter, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And in the context of the flood, many commentators believe that this is the length of Noah's ministry, that God was laying down 120 years till judgment would come. Noah preaching for 120 years. I think what that must have been like given the dreadful immorality and the godlessness of those times. Why did Noah preach so long? Why did God allow that ministry to go on so long? In Second Peter 3 and verse 9, that passage that we read together, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering with sinners. Why would God commission a preacher to proclaim the gospel to people who won't listen to him? To demonstrate his patience. It's a patience that we must not abuse. It's a divine long-suffering that we must not take for granted. God's patience is very great with us, but it will come to an end. Judgment will come. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? We can carry on forever, can't we? The fathers have fallen asleep. The earth has carried on. Everything's going on as normal. How would there ever be a God? How will there ever be judgment? Everything has kept on from creation right till now. Nothing's going to happen. Go out and enjoy yourself. Live whatever way you want. Peter's warning is, remember the flood. Remember that God unexpectedly poured out his judgment upon the world in the days of Noah. And there was a gospel preacher who warned them, and they ignored him. So this ministry of Noah's, what was the theme of Noah's ministry? What made Noah so unpopular? during this long period of witnessing and preaching. I mean, surely, if Noah was any way decent as a preacher, his ministry would have been one of love and tolerance for others, wouldn't it? Surely, he would have modified his message to to take account of the culture of the day in which he lived. That's what we do nowadays, isn't it? We water down the message we make it palatable to the people who live in this day of age and age. We have what they call seeker sensitive services. Attractional services is now the word for it. Don't think Noah had attended any of those church growth seminars. 
Noah preached about sin. God never overlooks sin. He does forgive it through Christ, who atones for our sin, who paid the fine for our sin in his own blood on the cross. Noah preached about sin, and he preached about righteousness. Noah was, according to the Scriptures, a preacher of righteousness. We read that earlier on. It's the theme of his ministry. He preached about the righteousness of men, that pathetic self-righteousness that is the equivalent of soiled, filthy rags in the sight of God. And he contrasted that righteousness with the perfect righteousness of God, showing how our righteousness falls far short of God's standards. He preached about sin, and he was a preacher of righteousness, and his very building of the ark shows that he was a preacher of judgment. And because we all fall short of God's standards, we cannot come into his presence. We need to be forgiven. And if we reject his forgiveness offered at the cross, then we stand before him in judgment. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Peter writes, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not as yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith a New Testament perspective on Noah. Now, unless I'm much mistaken, that message hasn't changed. In contrast to the efforts of the visible church today to compromise with the world, the message of sin and righteousness and judgment is still to be the message of the church, is it not? In fact, the Lord Jesus told us that when he left this world at the ascension, that the Holy Spirit would remain on this earth to fulfill his work. And John 16 and verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come for you, come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Noah's ministry had a long duration. Noah's ministry had a definite theme. And Noah's ministry had a poor response. Have you ever mentioned church to somebody and they'll say to you, what church do you go to? And you will say, I go to Temple Patrick. And I'll say, I go to Ballymacashan. What's the next thing they say? Well, how many people go to your church? Isn't it interesting that the measure of success in the modern church is how many people attend? So let's think about Noah for a moment. How many people went to Noah's church? How many people, how many of Noah's brothers, here's a wee quiz for you. 
See if you can get the right answer. How many of Noah's brothers went into the ark? Many? None. Okay, let's try something else. What about his parents or his cousins? No, don't think so. Friends? Any friends in there? No. 120 years of preaching and only eight people, including himself, were saved. Now, why do we want to see people flocking into God's house? Why do we want to hear, see people listening to the word of God? What's our attitude to it when only few people attend? What do we do? Will we follow the modern trend? Will we water down the message? Will we make our worship sound like the pop music of this world? Will we make our message acceptable to modern mankind? Or will we be faithful to God's word, preaching about sin and righteousness and judgment with the help of the Holy Spirit, even if that means that the message is totally unpalatable to modern society? I think Noah's a great encouragement for those of us who attend smaller churches and whose desire is to remain faithful to the word of God rather than to compromise with the world. 120 years of faithful gospel preaching. Seven people believed in God, repented. Seven people were in the ark when the flood came, when judgment fell. By modern standards, Noah was not successful. But then God never asked us to be successful. Noah was faithful, and God asked us to be faithful. Samuel Rutherford was the minister of Anwath near Gatehouse of Fleet in modern Dumfries and Galloway. During the covenanting times in the 17th century, he was one of those ministers who were expelled from the pulpit during the great ejectment of 1662. If you go to his church, you'll be surprised by two things. You'll be surprised by the smallness of the building. And you'll be surprised by the isolation. It's a beautiful place, but it's a way up a wee tiny road. And people will wonder at one of the greatest preachers in Scotland in his day, laboring for nine years until he was forced out in an obscure part of the country among a people who were sparsely populated over a wide area, a tiny number of people. But a great bond was forged between the soul of Samuel Rutherford and that tiny little flock at Anworth. In fact, that bond remained intact to the very end of his days. Later on, a woman called Mrs. Cousin wrote a poem. One of the verses of the poem, based on Rutherford's own words, says, Fair Anworth by the Solwyn. He's writing this when he's up in the north in Aberdeen, well away, no longer allowed to visit his, his church. Fair Anworth by the Solway, to me thou still art dear. Even from the verge of heaven I drop for thee a tear. 
with one soul from Anworth, meet me at God's right hand. My heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. That would make it all worthwhile, wouldn't it? Even in a small church, preaching faithfully the gospel, even if only one person joins us in heaven, then our heaven will be two heavens in God's land. Noah's work, Noah's walk, Noah's warranty, Noah's willingness, most of all, Noah's saintly perseverance to preach faithfully the word of God for as many years as the Lord would spare him to do it and to preach an unpopular thing of sin, righteousness, and judgment, even though there be few that respond, knowing that God's way is always best.